issue, topic, doctrine, all of those things kind of come into it when we talk about holiness this morning. And like I said, I have pondered this now for the last few months. It's been uh, meditating and uh, mulling in my mind as I've contemplated exactly what the Lord would want me to say, how to go about it, and the various aspects that relate to it, because it's really a vast subject. It's a very vast subject, and it's uh, uh, quite exhaustive in the Scriptures, and uh, it's exhaustive because of a few reasons, and it's not just related to the Word and what the Word teaches and what the Word reveals, but also uh, what adds to another layer to this is human experience and the whole dynamic of, of uh, the subjective element of how we live and how this is manifested and how we uh, live a life that is holy before the Lord. And so... I can stand here to this morning after now over 30 years of salvation and I can tell you categorically now from experience and not just the experience of 30 years but experience personally in my own life that I understand. I believe I do. I don't say this with arrogance. I say this because of uh, the genuineness of my experiences as a Christian that there's much conflict and controversy and confusion that surrounds holiness. And I know it from my own life. I know it from my own study of the scriptures. I know it from my own experience. And so, um, and, and it comes in waves, and I've seen it over the years. And even in recent times, uh, it has uh, come to the surface again. And so again, when we talk about holiness... There's uh, so much that goes on. And as I said, this is no new thing. We talk about the conflict, or not conflict, but the controversy and the confusion that surrounds holiness. It's not a new thing. It's been around for centuries, especially in New Testament times in relation to uh, the, Holy, the coming of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God dwelling in us and really how that uh, works and how the Spirit of God works in our hearts and manifests into a holy life. And things of that nature. And so there's, uh, uh, there's, uh, there's controversy. And, uh, and then you find statements that get made. There's misinterpreted, misunderstandings. There's a whole array of things that can be associated with this. And so in that instance and in that in light, we're going to address this over the next few weeks at least. I don't know how long this will kind of um, go on. But uh, we, will, we will address it in, uh, in a deeper uh, and detailed way this morning. And so let me say this. For hundreds of years now, the issue of holiness has been something that's been, like I said, discussed at length. And it's given way to various movements and teachings that people have adapted to and embraced and associated themselves with. And, uh, you know, you can go all the way back until uh, what we call the Methodist movement and John Wesley. And John Wesley was a, a, a wonderful servant of the Lord, man of God. The whole Methodist movement was a move of God. But you see, uh, but even still, uh, and, and, uh, and out of that, there was a genuine hunger and a desire for holiness. That's why it was called the Methodist movement. They had the methods all set in place, you know, the system. 
And so, you know, this is it. This is the method. Follow this method and you're sure to uh, succeed and live victoriously as a Christian. But you see, even in that, out of that and out of other things came various uh, forms of teaching that, again, these might not make sense to you, but they're called Christian perfection, where somehow the Christian can be perfected in holiness to such an extent that we can be totally uh, dead to sin and the, the inward principle of sin that dwells within each and every one of us. But the only problem is, is the harder you strive for that and the more you go on in that pursuit and uh, it came under many different terms, the more you began to realise that it was uh, unattainable in the, that perfect sense. Until, we're put, until we do away with this body, we, we're going to be living with it and its limitations and the struggles and the, the battles that are associated with it. So you, you won't get to that place. And when you think you do, just be careful because you've got to wake up the next morning. <laughs> okay? And so, but then that, gave, uh, then that gave way to other movements. And, you know, some may have ever heard of Keswick. Is that a word that's familiar to people? The Keswick Conventions. And uh, that, that, was a, that was something that was started to counteract the, uh, the, that whole teaching and uh, back, in, back in the um, uh, late 18th century, early 19th century, or 20th century, I should say. And so, you know, and they said, no, they, they had another way in which they were going to approach this and it had to do with Romans chapter 6 and all that related to the issues that are surrounding there in Scripture. And they said, no, you can't eradicate the sinful nature, but you can suppress it and you can counteract it to the point where you can live victoriously and free from sin. And in, in essence, there's, there's an element of truth to that. It's just not entirely found in the Scriptures that they were using in chapter 6 of the book of Romans. And so, again, they, the whole issue was dealing with this inward principle of sin. You see, the Bible says, and the gospel is this, that we have been forgiven of our sins, in the plural sense. We are all guilty, we've all committed sin, we've all transgressed God's law, and the gospel deals with our sins. But you see, now how does the gospel deal with our sinful nature? Because you can be saved and you can be uh, holy and righteous and receive the imputed righteousness of Christ, but you still have to battle with this sinful nature and this inward bread principle of sin that dwells in each of us this morning. And so, and so in light of that, we, it's, it's, sorry, it's hard as me too. Um, in light of that, we will um, we'll begin to see that uh, we, there is in Scripture a way in which we can live in, in victory. The Scripture makes provision for that, but it's how we understand it. It's how we approach it. It's how we attain it. And these are where the issues lie. This is where the contentions lie. This is where the controversy and confusion lies. And so... Let me say from the onset, as we discuss these things and as we deal with the various doctrines or teachings or we look at different things, what you're going to realise is that this is, we're talking about, uh, for the most part, well-intentioned people. I'm not here to try and, you know, criticise. We're talking about men of God that are far more, far more uh, if I use the word superior, in what they've done for the Lord than me. I, I, I'm just, what I'm going to share is what the Lord has taught me and shown me. 
But you're talking about wonderful men of God who have had wonderful experiences with God, have been used mightily by God, and they are well-intentioned in their motivations. And so uh, I think that we have to understand that before we just start throwing things out and becoming uh, critical of this or that, of this person or that person, which is not the intention of this series this morning. Because many of them in their experiences, they were real. They had genuine encounters with God. They experienced the fullness of the blessing of Christ in their lives. They knew what it was to walk in the Spirit and to be filled with the Spirit. It's just the way in which they sought at times to uh, uh, fit that in theologically into the Scriptures was not altogether correct. That's the point that I would make. And so, and, and, and so, but it didn't take away from their experience. And, and, uh, and so forth. Because there's no doubt about it, these were people that were serious about holiness. They may have been overemphasis at times, and we, which people can be quick to criticise, but you, tell, you know what? To their credit, they were serious about holiness. They were serious when it came to holy living and how to walk worthy before the Lord and to live a holy life and to obey the commands of Scripture and uh, to, to just live in a manner that was pleasing to the Lord. They were serious about it and they pursued it as such. And so we can't be quick to judge any doctrinal errors that, uh, uh, that may manifest themselves in, in this process. But like I said, you know, a lot of the doctrinal errors, for the most part, find their expression in Romans chapter 6, which can be quite a confusing chapter. We're going to look at aspects of it um, over, this period, over the period of our series. This series. But nevertheless, um, it's an exhaustive topic, and I'm just scratching the surface. And so this morning, what I really want to do is just touch upon, this is an introduction, really, there's so many thoughts that are out there and going through my mind that I want to filter them through. But this is really just an introduction because we, before we can begin to deal with some of the serious aspects of God's word in relation to holiness, I think it's important to just try and lay a foundation, or not even a foundation, an understanding of some of the errors or some of the controversial, confusing aspects that are associated in the discussion and practice of holiness. And so this helps us to then proceed as we begin to navigate truth and apply it to our lives. And so I'm going to read just as a, as a, as a, as a launching pad. I'm not going to look at it in too much detail. In Romans chapter 6, there's a scripture there, verse 11. It's one of the confusing and controversial texts, as is the aspects of the chapter. But it says here, Paul writes to the... And he says, likewise, you also... Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Now, what does that mean? We're not going to look at that this today, other than to just make this point, and I want to emphasize a few things out of it this morning. But again, the bigger question that we're going to address through the series is this. What is holiness and how is it achieved in the believer's life because really this is really important this question and it must be answered 
Because you're going to find statements that are going to be made that are going to seem controversial and true and appear to be maybe wrong. But you're going to find statements that are being tossed out and thrown out. And you might be familiar with some of these, but you're going to find people are going to say, well, you know what? Holiness is through and in Christ alone. And, any, and the act of the will is not, uh, uh, it's not through, or holiness is not through an act of the will. And so you'll find a statement like that. Holiness is in Christ and it's through Christ. And it's not found in an act of the will. These are statements that get thrown around. You'll find statements and people say, well, look, holiness, it's by faith. It's not by works. And so they say, no, it's holiness is is through the Spirit. It's not by way of self-effort. And you find these expressions that are, and, and this is where people are either on one side or the other side, and as if somehow these statements are exclusively antagonistic to one another. But they're not. They're not. I think this is where some of the problem lies. You see, all these statements and these statements, they're not antagonistic or opposed to each other. The truth is this, and this is what I want to emphasize this morning, is that both are right or wrong according to the aspect and context of each of those statements. Because there is truth in in every aspect of those statements. It's just how you apply that truth and how you understand that truth. But when you start to just throw out these cliches without really giving a proper context and understanding, then you get the impression that they are opposing each other. And again, you take any truth to an extreme and it does become an error. And that's guilty on both sides of the camp because people say, no, I'm on the faith, I'm on the works. No, it's holiness is in Christ. No, there's no self-effort or act of the will. And somehow these things are not connected, but then they are, they are uniquely connected in the whole issue of holiness this morning. They just have to be defined properly. They just have to be taught properly. You just have to understand them, and then you can see in the topic of holiness what is God's part and what is our part, because the two are to work together. And so, like I said, take any truth to an extreme and it becomes an error and both sides of the argument can be guilty of this. So we need a proper foundation. Then you find that people will say, well, you know what, Uh, have you ever heard the term legalistic thrown around? (laughs) I have. And so you find it and you find people when they see that there's an emphasis on holiness, people be quick to say, oh, they're just legalistic. They're just being legalistic. And they just throw the term out without really understanding what they're saying. And so because legalism is a, uh, uh, is a word that gets misused often, in my, in my opinion. And I do understand. And let me say, I do understand legalism. And I'm going to show you that this morning. I'm going to share some things. But I do understand legalism, I believe. And so just because one is serious about their approach to uh, holiness and may have some strong opinions and, and, uh, and, and live a certain way, it doesn't mean that they're legalistic. It's not legalism. Oh, you're just being legalistic. 
We can have differences of opinion, I get that, but it doesn't mean it's legalism. The, t- the term gets abused and misused so often. Plus, legalism is when you have to do A, B and C in order to be in right standing with God. That's when it becomes, it can become legalism. So when you start to talk about self-effort and when you start to talk about uh, you know, demonstrating some works, maybe, if we can use the term, and I will, in its context, this is, this, this is where you open yourself up to these type of accusations. So like I've said, any Christian who approaches the issue of holiness seriously this morning is going to find themselves searching the scriptures. Simple as that. If you're serious about holiness and you're serious about understanding holiness and doing right before God, it's going to ultimately draw you to the scriptures. And you're going to read the Bible and you're going to say, Lord, help me to understand what is holiness and how it is achieved. Lord, what is, what is it that you want me to do? How am I supposed to live? And I've too been in that place personally in my, as a Christian. I've been at a place where I've been living in a certain way and then I've come across various things and experiences and trials and tribulations in my life and I've had to question, I've had to examine and I've had to go into the scriptures and I've had to search and I've, and, and, and I've sorted out over a long period of time. It didn't just happen overnight. It was something that was like a layer upon layer as the Lord began to reveal and to teach and to show me. And so what I share really is a, is a, is, is a product of, of, of that. It's not just intellect this morning. It's not just my study of the scriptures, but I bear out to you this morning what has been deep, deep experience and trial and suffering in my life to, to come to the understanding that I have even now. Not saying that I've got it all perfected. Not saying I've got every dot and t uh, dot you know d- dotted and t crossed and all those things. I don't. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be as presumptuous as to say that. But I do believe the Lord has shown me some things and to taught me some things over the, over that time. And like I said to you, the issue goes to the heart of my experience as a Christian. And what I want to do this morning, just briefly, is I want to just share, if I can, if you would allow me just to share with you as an assembly, my experience. Because it's so critical to the doctrine of holiness. Do you know that the biggest decision of my Christian life related to this issue of holiness? That I was, in a, I was born and saved into a fellowship at 18 years old. A church that I, that uh, uh, for 20 years that I served in and I was trained and I, uh, I was a pastor in and I served in, as, I was pastored for 10 years in a small pioneer work. And over time and through my experience, as I began to see things and as God began to reveal things to me, I went through such a, 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 a God brought me through such a trial and a period of time in, uh, in which it got to the point where I had to resign. That I had to say, I can't in good conscience function and teach and do this. And so I had to hand in my resignation, resign from the ministry, not knowing where I was going or what I was doing. God shut me up to faith. I wasn't planning to come to Kingsway Christian Fellowship. I really wasn't. 
I didn't know. It would have been easier for the Lord to have told me and show me, but God didn't. But I knew I had to make a decision now and based on what I understood and where the Lord had brought me to, and a decision was required. And that was, a, that was not easy. 20 years. It's not just an easy decision to make, but it came down to the issue of holiness and its doctrine and its practice that, that has motivated where I am at today. And isn't it interesting, in 10 years I've taught on holiness, but I've never gone into depths of holiness as I intend to over this series. I had to grapple with it, the doctrine of holiness and its practical applications to the Christian life. And I too experienced amongst my brethren controversy. I experienced confusion and disillusionment in my own life and ministry. And it was a process of years And I share this this morning because I want to emphasize the point and I want to show you because what I went through, others go through. I wasn't the only one that's grappled with these questions before and these issues. When you're serious about holiness and you're serious about teaching holiness and instructing others in relation to this issue, you begin to search the scriptures and you say, Lord, I've got to understand I want to do what's right. I've got to be wise in my teaching and how I approach it. And so... God allowed these things. And I just want to share it briefly because it illustrates the point and it sets up as part of a foundation the teaching of holiness that we want to move towards. But you see, I, as a pastor, I was proceeding upon a false principle of holiness. And I compared it in the end to leaven that leavens the lump. That's how I, at the conclusion that I'd come to, It was just a small piece of lemon, but it leavened the lump so terribly. And when you you traced it back to its root, and it wasn't, you know, there's probably a few, obviously a few roots, but this was clearly a root. And the Lord had no doubt undoubtedly shown me this. And I'd come to the conclusion that it was a subtle form of legalism. And I say subtle form. Others might say, oh, that's full-blown legalism and whatever. But I saw it as a subtle form of legalism in its definition. So you say, well, okay, well, why, what was it? Because in our approach to holiness, this is what we were required to do as a minister. Now, if anybody in the assembly wanted to participate in any form of ministry, if you wanted to play the piano or run the desk or take up an offering, any form of ministry, then you had to adhere to the, sta- to the disciplines and the standards. Now, I had no problems with the disciplines, spiritual disciplines, like being in a prayer meeting. If you're going to be serving in the church as much as possible and depends on you, be in the prayer meeting. It's just common sense. But it was spiritual disciplines, right? So I had no problems with them being standards. Others I know do, but I don't have a problem with that. But what I did have a problem with is we had a standard of righteousness. So if you wanted to participate in these ministries, then you had to embrace the standards. And the standards was an outward form of righteousness or practicing righteousness, which was this. You had to not attend a movie theater and you, had not, you were not allowed to own a TV. Now you will say, what's wrong with those things? Well, they're good. In essence, they're noble, aren't they? What can be so evil about them? The problem is not those things in and of themselves. In the practice of righteousness, they're very valid points. 
The problem is when you start to apply holiness and you start to impose righteousness as an outward form and you set up a rule of conduct or a standard of conduct that applies to a whole group of people that you have to adhere to, there is a problem. That's why I call it a subtle form of legalism. Now, they were sincere. In its, well, well, in the beginning when they implemented it, it was sincere. In that they just desired to just, you know, there were lots of people getting saved and it was the Jesus, end of the Jesus movement and it had filtered into Australia as well as, as well as the States. And so they implemented these good standards with good intention. It wasn't that they wanted to control people or they sought to manipulate. These things can creep in, but that wasn't the intention, I believe. It was noble. But once you move and venture into an outward form, you are running, you are, you are moving into a serious minefield. And there are inherent dangers that are associated when you start to set up an outward form of righteousness. It doesn't matter if it's right. You can't live that way because it violates the very principle of holiness in the scriptures and how holiness is achieved. And when you do that, you short-circuit what the Holy Spirit is meant to do in the human heart. And you set up an outward form. And then the inherent dangers are really, really uh, serious. In fact, I'll state it. Because the Bible says that the strength of sin is the law. So when you start to set up an outward form in a genuine desire to set up holiness and you set up an outward form of righteousness that you must adhere to and you ultimately is imposed, because if you don't do it, you can't participate, right? Everyone will say, oh, it's my conviction, but if you don't have the conviction, then you can't participate. <laughs> and so what happens is at short circus, the Bible says that the strength of sin is the law. So in other words, where holiness has not been born of the Spirit and is of the Spirit, in the inward part first and foremost, manifesting itself outwardly, what you get is an outward form where the inward is not yet built. And people build on an externalism, formalism, on a system, on a method. And this has inherent dangers because you know what the Bible says? The strength of sin is what? The law. So when you set up an outward form, there's something about human nature. In other words, the inward principle of sin, the inbred sinfulness that is in each one of us, when an outward form is imposed, you know what it does? Paul says, tells us in Romans 7, he says, where the law said don't do this, all manner of evil began to manifest because the problem was not sin that was outside of me, it was sin that was in me. And so when you set up a law, you awaken the sinful nature. You empower the sinful nature. And all of a sudden, what was meant for good turns out in the end and the fruit thereof is evil. It produces self-righteousness. It forms an outward form of holiness that's not holiness at all. Because holiness is first internal before it expresses itself externally. And so these were some of the things that I had come to understand. These were some of the things that I was sharing with my peers and my leaders. And it brought me into a degree of controversy. Until I reached a crisis in my life. A crisis of conscience, really, it was. 
And, uh, and to the point where not only did I speak about it with my leaders, I was determined to speak to the founder of the fellowship that I was a part of. He, uh, he, his name was Wayman Mitchell. You know, you're, you're talking about two, th- two and a half thousand churches worldwide. He's just, you know, to just approach him personally is not something that just, you know, you can you have the opportunity to do. But I was given, I exchanged some emails with him. I met with him at a conference. He gave me not much time, but it was some time. It was enough time. And because uh, I wanted to share my burden, I wanted to show and I wanted people to see what I had come to understand in the scripture and what we were so ignorant of and why it was causing us so many problems and why the sins of the flesh were so manifesting in our midst when we proclaim that we're, we're a holiness church. And so, let me say, Wayman Mitchell was a man of God. He had flaws. Every man of God had flaws. In fact, he was, uh, uh, his, his example was, was his, the, his example in self-discipline and single-mindedness put people to shame. He was a leader. He was used by God. You know, it's so interesting because I still look at this today, and I'll share it, because this is, still confounds me, but it demonstrates that God's greater than any man. And that is that Wayman Mitchell, you know, the, who, who's the founder of Calvary Chapel was Chuck Smith. Chuck Smith... And Wayman Mitchell came from, they, they both as young men attended the same Bible college, Life Bible College, and they were both part of the Four Square Church, which was Pentecostal movement in America. They both got disillusioned and left the Four Square Church, and it was at the time of the Jesus movement that was sweeping across America in the late 60s and 70s, and they both were used by God, and, and to, to be, they were so fruitful, their ministries were so fruitful, Undoubtedly, you just look at them and see the fruit. It's there to see. And yet, I tell you now, those two were as, as black and white. They would not have agreed on their approach to ministry. They would not have agreed on how they went about things. They would have clashed undoubtedly. I know it for a fact. And yet, God saw fit to use both of them. And so, because God... So when I talk about these issues, it's not like I'm trying to criticise... Uh, any individual. I'm just pointing out that if there's flaws. John Wesley, that's why they talk about John Wesley, that wonderful man of God. And yet, when it came to the exact doctrine of holiness and Christian perfection, there was an error there. And that ev- error can, can and does cause problems eventually. So, <clears throat> I shared with him my thoughts. This is with Wayman Mitchell. So stay with me, church. I shared with him and he quoted a scripture, which I just read to you, in Romans 11. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. And so he had mentioned that, and he had referred to a particular book and a particular author as he tried, well, he did understand my line of thinking and reasoning, and he was explaining to me how it was wrong. And he used particular expression. And he said these words. He says, the problem with many, when it comes to Romans 6, this word reckon, he says that many uh, hold to the, the, the truth that the reckoning automatically produces righteousness without self-effort or work. So in other words, he's saying when you reckon on the reality of what is taught 
in Romans chapter 6, when you reckon and take an assessment of that and you make the decision and reach the conclusion, when you reckon upon that truth and upon that reality and understand it, then righteousness will automatically come forth from your life. And uh, you don't, so the emphasis is on the truth rather than emphasizing self-effort or works. Now, he was using that statement to justify the standards. So he was talking about self-effort and works in the context of applying and justifying a standard of righteousness, which is what I was contending. And so in, in, in that, I, again, I, I disagreed with, with him. I didn't disagree with self-effort and works. I disagreed with the application of self-effort and works in that it equaled for them a standard of righteousness which they implemented and set up for a, a whole group of people which I thought is wrong. That's a subtle form of legalism. So you're following me. And so, as I said, I resigned because I had a conflict of conscience. There was no way as a pastor now understanding and teaching what I get in the scriptures I could do implement those things. So I had to, I had to leave. I had to resign. That was, that was not easy. This was my fa- our family. But it was what the Lord was leading me to do. So in saying this this morning, let me put forth this question. Does that mean that scripture rejects the principle and emphasis of self-effort and works? Because as I said at the beginning, when you talk about self-effort and works, um, older people will know, it's like running your fingers on a blackboard. (laughs) You see, the modern generation, they've got all these things now. You talk about a blackboard, they don't understand what you mean. I don't know of any other best way to explain it, but if you put your fingers on a blackboard and run it, you get that reaction. And that's how it is. You talk about self-effort and works in the Christian life, and that's how some people respond. And then, you know, and people begin to react, and they want to put forth this truth, they want to put forth that truth. And, and, and I'm not saying they're truths. But you see, when it comes to holiness, there are various tensions that hold it up. And it's not just one thing. You overemphasize one point, and it does. It does lead to error. But so you've got to have all of these things uh, balanced and, ten- and at the right tension together to understand the, 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 the scriptural teaching that relates to holiness. Like I said, people say, oh, the holiness is in Christ. It's not an act of the will or self-effort. But you see, when we make that statement, we have to clarify what that means because if we're talking about justification, then yes. If we're talking about sanctification, then yes. We're dealing with different context. We're dealing with different principles. We're dealing with different truths. So if you're discussing justification, then the emphasis is on holiness is in Christ. And we'll look at that. But if you're going to talk about sanctification and as as walking in holiness and living a life of holiness, then you're going to talk about the issues of self-effort and works. But it's what those self-effort and works are rooted in. It's the foundation that is critical when we talk about these things. You see, I remember reading a, a, a book series 
and uh, it was by an, uh, an author by the name of Sidlow Baxter. And uh, I think it's one of the most profound series on Christian sanctification because he, uh, the way he wrote and what he wrote. And he wrote a, a book that was called um, A New Call to Holiness. The second book was called um, His Deeper Work in Us. And the third book was called His Part and Ours. And it was written ex- extensively as a study and, um, uh, of Christian sanctification dealing with the issue of holiness. It was, one of, it was a tremendous book. So much so that I'm going to quote one of his statements uh, at, that, at length because it's going to summarise some of the things I've been speaking about this morning. But I want to emphasise the issue as he does. Let's read it. He says these words. He says, No teaching of holiness can be strictly true to the New Testament which excludes human effort. Although the most strenuous human effort is utterly powerless to affect inward holiness, and although the Holy Spirit alone can renew our moral nature, yet the Holy Spirit never sanctifies the mind and the heart as to render human cooperation superfluous or unnecessary. He says, furthermore, although human effort is equally powerless in itself, to maintain inwrought holiness. In other words, it's not, it's, it's, the, the power doesn't lie in the will. Okay? It involves the will, but the power is not in the will. That's the world. If you, get, if you think the power is in the will, then you'll end up where Paul ended up. And, 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 and every time he said that he was going to, you know, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to overcome, I'm not going to do that sin ever again. And what did he do? <laughs> what does he say? He does it. Because it's not in the power of the will, not in the strength of that alone. It has to be, the will has to be rooted and grounded in the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. So he says, furthermore, although human effort is equally powerless in itself to maintain inward holiness after the Holy Spirit has wrought the lovely miracle within us, yet human cooperation is all the while necessary in resisting encroachments of evil, Upon the sanctified territory. We're in a war. We talked about the Amalekites last year in the flesh that we have to battle and deal with. That wants to take ground in our lives. In cultivating prayerful responsiveness to the Holy Spirit. That's what we have to have. If we're going to be living a holy life, you have to be prayerfully um, in prayer and cultivating a prayerful responsiveness to the issues and circumstances of your life in relation to holiness. He says, on one of the subtle, listen to this, one of the subtle blunders in much holiness teaching has been to play off, and this is what I was saying before, faith and works as mutually antagonistic. Many have preached that sanctification is exclusively by faith. Others in dogged disapproval have insisted that it is by works. Both are right or wrong according to context. And this is what's so critical. In every spiritual transaction, there is an interplay of the divine and the human. Inasmuch as on the divine side, sanctification is a work which God alone can effect, it must be appropriated by faith. On the human side, there must be self 
separation from all controllable wrong in the life. You've got to, there's a part you have to play. Complete self-yielding to Christ. Obedience to the written word of God and a prayerful determination to live only to his glory. Sanctification is not real unless it expresses itself in obedience to the divine law. And obedience means works. I agree wholeheartedly with that statement. I can't tell you how much I am in agreement with it. And so in other words... But the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. You see, there is a law, there's an outward, when it comes to the outward form of the law, sin and death, that's what it produces. But there's a spirit of life, and there's a law to the spirit of life of Christ. And that doesn't mean that the Christian life is without law. To the contrary. And so we, 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 there are commandments in Scripture that we are called to obey and we are called to walk in obedience. And again, how do we fulfill that which God wants us to do? That's why holiness, first and foremost, is inward. It is of the Spirit. And we're going to establish that foundation before you move to the practical outward manifestation of holiness in the life. Because where you have just self-effort and works without the proper foundation of faith and our standing in Christ and uh, the holiness that's been imputed to us in Christ and all of the biblical truths that relate to that, where that foundation is lacking, you will run into big problems. And I've seen it. I've experienced it. And I've fallen into the same dilemma that Paul the Apostle did. Romans chapter 7, and then I've cried out, Lord, who will deliver me from this body of death? Because you find in me, a part of me wants to live right and do right, but there's another part of me that just gravitates towards sin and wants to disobey. And I'm a Christian. People argue, is that the regenerate man? Is that the unregenerate man? It's the Christian. It's human nature, whether you're saved or unsaved. The the issue is when you are saved, God has made provision for that sinful nature so that it does not have to dominate. That's why they said in Romans 6, they said, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Don't you understand that we now, in Christ, we have dominion over sin, that we are free not just from our sins, but we are free, and we're not just free from the penalty of our sins, we are free from the power of sin in our lives. But that doesn't just happen by us resolving that we're not going to do it again. That somehow we can, we have the power. Again, notice how I'm rephrasing all of this and I'm making all of these emphases and you'll see that there's truth and there's error operating in all of these statements at once. And so that's why it is, I want to simplify it. I pray God helps us to do that this morning. But we want to look at these things in the scripture. Because you can't have self-effort and works if the foundation of Christ is not properly laid or understood. It will lead to error, it'll lead to legalism, and it will lead to self-righteousness. You know, I was thinking about it. Who were the most zealous people for holiness in the New Testament in Jesus' day? The Pharisees. They were the, if, if you wanted to be serious about holiness, there was a group of people that were serious. Outwardly, the outward traditions, the forms and the system that they had set up 
outwardly, all the people said, oh, these people are holy. And they were serious about it. But who were the most furthest away from God? Sadducees. <laughs> okay, technically you're right, Peter. <laughs> but the, and many of the Pharisees, not all, but many of the Pharisees were far away from God. And in doing so, that's why Jesus said to them, you Pharisees and you Sadducees, didn't he rebuke them severely? And he said, listen, do what they say, but just don't do what they do. They had an outward form, but inwardly, Jesus says, you're full of dead men's bones. There's death. So they had the outward form of religion. They had the outward form of holiness. And it was a self-righteousness that God despised and hated. You don't find him treating the sinner like that, did you? We know that when the prostitute comes. But when the Pharisee's there, he rips them. Because we don't want to fall into the same trap as the Pharisees. I've seen it. I've been there, in fact. I've seen it at work in a church. I've seen it work in a fellowship. And I've seen where a sincere approach to holiness has wrought, like leaven through a lump, produced self-righteousness, hypocrisy, and all forms of manner of, of sin. And yet we think we're more holy because you don't have TV, you don't go to the movies. Holiness, but yet we hate, we're jealous, we, you know, all the inward sin, because it's, it's what's going on in here first and foremost. Does that mean that owning a TV is wrong or right? That's not the issue. It's noble. It's a noble. People have convictions on this, serious convictions. But you can't set it up as a rule of life. You know, and so I think I'll leave it there. I think I've made my point this morning in terms of trying to just give you an understanding of the problem, an understanding of my own life even, because I don't know if I've shared this in detail with individuals, but I'm sharing it with the assembly this morning. And so we're going to go back to that question, what is holiness and how is it achieved? And in doing so, I want to close with one last scripture because we're embarking on a, on a highway, the Bible calls it, in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 8. It says, a highway shall be there and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others or those that walk in God's way. And that's what we want to do. We're embarking on this path, the pathway or the highway, as the scripture says, of holiness. And even now as Christians, because we're called to be holy, there's no doubt about it, we're called to be holy. This is a serious topic we're dealing with. This is life and death stuff. This is so serious that we, we, we can't just underestimate what we're dealing with when we talk about holiness. But I've tried to just portray a little bit of some of the mis confusion and controversy that surrounds it. And, and, um, uh, because, like I said, people will say that. Our oh, holiness is of Christ. It's not in self-effort and works. And I pray what I've said this morning kind of lays a bit of a foundation to where I want to go and what I want to say. And may the Lord help us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we just bless your holy name. My God, I pray that this series, Lord, God, that you would speak to us. This has just been introductory, Lord. 
But I've shared this, Lord, in light of uh, establishing our, our, our understanding and preparing us, God, for the, the word of God to go deep into our hearts. Lord, knowing that we, have, we are to reckon ourselves dead indeed to sin. Lord, and not live any longer in it, nor practice it. But Lord, it's, uh, holiness is much more than that, God. Holiness comes it's so much deeper, so much broader. And Lord, help us to understand it in accordance with your word. Oh God, I pray that you'd bless the assembly. Bless us. Help us. Help me, Lord, as we go forward in this, in this subject. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, praise God. The Lord bless you.